1: The chapter begins with the words, after these things had been done. So, of course, we want to know what things. At the end of chapter 8, we hear about a very thorough accounting being done of all the gold and silver and other offerings that had been entrusted to the convoy. And given the huge quantities involved, that probably would have taken a fair bit of time. Then in verse 36 of chapter 8, we were told that Ezra had a number of papers and missives to deliver to various local officials. The execution of that task would no doubt have taken a fair bit of time as well. And if we compare the date of arrival given in chapter 8 and the date for the assembly mentioned in chapter 10 verse 9, then it would appear as if just over four months lie behind those words after these things had been done. Ezra was entirely occupied with his official duties as the head of this convoy and as an official representative of the Persian government to the region. And so it was a few months before he received a report as to the state of the Jewish people living in the land. We pick up the story at verse 1. After these things had been done, The officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands." And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Now, you'll recall that the first wave of returnees was made up disproportionately of younger single men. And of course, that was completely understandable. The first wave of return was essentially an extended work party. The land would have to be cleared. The temple compound essentially reconstructed. That was going to be heavy work and it was going to be done under hostile conditions. So we aren't terribly surprised that the majority of volunteers for that project were single men. Not too many 45-year-old fathers of five are taking their wife and kids on that kind of trip. So it was mostly young men. But eventually, young men want to marry. And when there are fewer young women than there are young men, you tend to run into some problems. And that's what happened here. The first wave of returnees married women from the surrounding people groups. Of course, they could have gone back to Babylon to get a wife from among the Jewish population there, but that would have been costly and time-consuming. Certainly not impossible, just really difficult. So instead, they married local. And as a result, the covenant community had become compromised. Look at verse 2 there. The ESV has that as, They've taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. Now, in Hebrew, literally, it is the holy seed. The issue isn't racism. The issue is religious and cultural identity. The Jewish people are the keepers of the line of promise. They stand in a long line of faith and continuity that stretches all the way back to Father Abraham. Remember how careful they were in the early days of the return to check everyone's paperwork to ensure that they were actually Jewish. Well, what's the good of all that? if Then you're going to go ahead and marry a non-Jewish girl. Now your kids are going to grow up learning the religious teachings and stories of the Canaanites. So how is that helpful? It doesn't matter what your paperwork says, because the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. F. Charles Fensham says here, "...the influence of a foreign mother with her connection to another religion on her children would ruin the pure religion of the Lord and would create a syncretistic religion running contrary to everything in the Jewish faith." In the end, it was a question of the preservation of their identity. Quote. All right, so this is maximally bad news. The people are compromised from top to bottom. And it isn't just the the people, the the regular lay folks who have done this. The leaders and the officials have been among the worst offenders. Ezra is understandably devastated by this news. We pick up the story at verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Grief and sorrow in Jewish culture are often publicly demonstrated. We remember, for example, the loud mourners that sometimes show up in the stories about Jesus in the Gospels. And, of course, Jesus wept loudly and publicly at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Emotion was not stifled in this culture. It was expressed. And Ezra engages here in several visible demonstrations of outrage. He, he tears his garment and his cloak, and he pulls out his own hair. That would have been painful, bloody, and shocking to all who saw him. And he made sure that everyone saw him. He sat publicly in the temple compound as people gathered round for the evening sacrifice. We pick up the story at verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying oh my God i am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you my God for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens let's just pause here and notice that Ezra identifies with the sin of the people even though he did not participate in the sin of the people he says i am ashamed He talks about how our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Modern-day Christians often struggle a bit with that, particularly modern-day Christians from modern Western cultures. We are highly individualistic in our outlook, but Jewish people, like most other ancient cultures, were highly communal in their outlook. They didn't think that every man was an island. They understood that what the individual does affects the entire community. And of course, that's not just an Old Testament idea. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul says that believers are all members of the one body of Jesus Christ. They are part of a corporate community. And as such, what happens to one is of importance to all. He says in verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So maybe our discomfort with passages like this one in Ezra 9 has more to do with our cultural identity than it does to do with our Christian identity. Because Old Testament and New, the health and well-being of the covenant community is a matter of corporate interest. It's something that should concern us all. It certainly concerns Ezra despite that he was not personally involved in any of the sins and stupidity being confessed. He hadn't married a pagan lady. There, there, was, there was no Canaanite lady in his tent teaching his children to worship Baal. And yet he steps into the problem and he owns it as his own. Derek Kidner says here, Like the servant in Isaiah 53:12, he was impelled to reckon himself numbered with the transgressors more deeply ashamed of the national guilt than any of them, and thus more fit to be their spokesman in confession. Quote. There's something in that that should stand as a rebuke to many of us, myself included, as Christians in the Western world. We rejoin Ezra's prayer in verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Now, remember, Ezra is praying in a very public place. He intends for his prayer to be heard, not just by God, but by the people of God. Now, I know that we often remind young pastors not to use the pastoral prayer to make announcements or to, you know, flesh out the last point in your sermon, but there are exceptions to that rule, (laughs) and this is obviously one of them. Ezra is reminding the people that this is how they got into trouble in the first place. From the days of our fathers, we've been doing this, and God told us how it would end. In Deuteronomy 7, 1-4, they were told... When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Closed quote. Well, Looking back to verse 1 of Ezra 9, it is clear that Ezra means to recall this passage and others like it. He borrows language and bits of this list from Deuteronomy 7, and he appears to mash it together with a a bit of a list from Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, as a way of saying, you have done exactly what God told us in multiple places in the Bible not to do. You have married unwisely. You have not prioritized the spiritual purity of your heart. Homes, and as a result, you have not passed your faith on to your children. This is how apostasy happens. This is how judgment is summoned. This is how exile comes to the covenant people. So, what in the world were you thinking? That's the implied sermon inside this prayer. Oh, Lord, we've done exactly what you told us not to do. We didn't learn from the exile. The virus has not been expunged from our operating software. We are still sinful. We are still lustful. We are still stupid. Oh, God, help us. That's the sum of Ezra's prayer thus far. But there's some interesting language that I want you to notice here. Look carefully at verse 8. Ezra says, But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, or his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Close quote. So just notice there that Ezra considers this group, this rather small band of, of returned exiles in Judah, as the remnant. This is the shoot from which God will regrow the covenant community. Now, he says this despite the fact that there were far more Jews back in Babylon who were living and thriving at the heart of the Persian Empire. Nevertheless, it is not those people who are the remnant. It is these people, these few, these poor, these sinful stragglers and compromisers in Judah and Jerusalem. They are the remnant, and and that's why... Ezra is prepared to enforce such a severe response to this community crisis. I'll warn you up front, we're going to struggle with what we're about to read in the next chapter. It, this, this is one of the hardest passages, the hardest sections in, in all the Bible. It raises legitimate questions that we're going to have to process. But Ezra understood what was at stake here. If this vine is rotten at the root, then what chance do the replanted people of Israel have of worshiping and serving the Lord as they were called to do? If the plumb line is off, then what hope does this project have? We need a solid base. We, we need a good seed. We need a healthy shoot. And therefore, there can be no compromise and no syncretism here at, at this Foundational level. We carry on with Ezra's sermonic prayer in verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us, for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, you are just for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. One of the things that we should be careful to point out here is that the commandments regarding mixed marriages are, in fact, pretty narrow. There's no law in the Old Testament that expressly forbids marriage with foreigners. In fact, several of the patriarchs and great leaders of the covenant community married women who were not ethnically Jewish. Moses, for example, married a Cushite woman. According to 2 Samuel 3, verse 3, King David married an Aramean woman, the daughter of the king of Gesher. So we would assume that as long as these women adopted Jewish beliefs and practices, the, the marriages would have been legitimate and considered as existing within the law. The law itself, as we read it a minute ago from Deuteronomy 7, 1-4, explicitly mentions the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Those seven tribes representing the pre-conquest population of Canaan. Those are the folks with, with all their disgusting religious and moral practices. Those are the folks who practiced male cult prostitution and child sacrifice. Those folks in particular to have nothing to do with the covenant people. You shall not intermarry with them, the law says, for their abominations have filled the land with uncleanness. Now, what's interesting is that by this point in the story, by this point in the history of the area, the ethnic makeup of the local inhabitants in this region was a total hodgepodge due to the various exiles and mixing and replanting efforts of the Assyrians and Babylonians. So the people in the land at this time were not actually Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. As H.G.M. Williamson points out here, ethnically, there was no exact equation, he says, but the intention of the law, that the chief religious danger comes from those closest at hand, is accurately represented. Thus, it is correct to speak here of interpretation of the biblical text, Close quote. So Ezra, as a skilled scribe, is extracting a principle from a particular context that no longer exists, and he is reapplying it here in a new cultural and historical situation. He's saying, what you've done here in intermarrying with these mixed-breed pagan folks, many of whom were probably Samaritans, is exactly what we were told not to do back in the days of Moses. We were told not to intermarry with people like that despite that they were close at hand, we are to ask whether or not this woman, this potential mate, shares our faith and our values and can partner with us in raising the children of our household in the ways and word of Almighty God. You haven't done that. And as a result, the entire covenant project hangs in the balance. And so, harsh measures... Will be required. We'll read about those in the next chapter. And we will be reminded that fixing broken things and undoing sinful choices is always painful and traumatic work. And we will be reminded that it is so much better and so much wiser to do things right the first time around. It is a blessing and a kindness to ourselves and to others to live our lives and to make our choices in the light of the counsel and commandments that have been given to us in Holy Scripture. Thanks be to God.